0: Welcome back. This is episode five of the Struck Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blue and I'm joined here remotely by lightning protection expert, Alan Hall. Alan, how are you?
1: Great, Dan. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. Here on the Struck Podcast, we talk about everything lightning, aviation, and just current news in the airspace uh, field. So, Alan, what is going on today in aviation? What do you got? Any news for us?
1: Well, everything is not flying. That's that's the news today. So planes, uh,
0: planes are just buses. So air buses are just literal buses right they're
1: now. They're literally buses or they're cargo airplanes. I've seen a lot of conversions happening to making passenger airplanes into cargo airplanes, which is the thing to do. I saw FedEx is really busy. There's a, I think it was a New York Times article talking about how busy FedEx is. And uh, we're on pretty much every FedEx aircraft with our strike tape product. And we have seen them flying a lot because everybody's ordering things off of Amazon and and yep. FedEx is one way to do that or it was until recently, you know, FedEx uh, and Amazon had a parting of the ways there, but there's still a lot of things being, being mailed around, uh, because you know, everybody's stuck at home. So there's a lot of cargo business going on and that at least keeping some portion of the airplanes flying, which is beneficial.
0: Yeah. And my, my, my apartment building here in DC, the, uh, they've, And God bless all the people that are doing a lot of these tasks. Like, you know, we have a concierge desk and and they have to go get your packages from them and they're there 24 seven, which is nice compared to some buildings. But yeah, they, they said like, Hey, please come down and get your packages quick when they come, because we have way more packages than even like the typical Christmas season. Whoa. Yeah. They, I mean, so when you're, you know, I'm in a, a pretty, pretty good sized building. And when you consider... Yeah, just like the, the people are trying to order literally everything and not leave their house, which is good mm. for the pandemic, but it's not great yeah. for the people who have to handle all these packages and right. you know, we have to come down and sign for them like, you know, that's fine for me. I interact with one person one time, but they're interacting with every yeah, every building every day. Yeah. And so all of us have just been obviously trying to abide by whatever rules they set and give them their distance and you know, take their package and and be about our way. But, you know, there's a lot of people doing those jobs, you know, whether it's your postal worker, your package delivery,
1: yeah. uh,
0: man or woman, your, there, all these things, grocery workers, like there's a lot of essential jobs that are just, you know, I appreciate everyone continuing to do those. It's putting them at risk and it's huge. Doing just to kind of keep everything, everything going.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I know here we got until there's a little bit of a tussle in a in a local town where the post office stopped delivering to a particular apartment complex because it had Possibility of of uh, coronavirus from one of the uh, dwellers there, and so they stopped delivering to that to that place um, because hmm. the postal workers were really concerned about uh, just the interactions with the people there, and even just handling packages. So you can kind of see that. I'm not sure how that all played out. I know that there's been some news articles about it, but yeah, uh, you can see both sides of it though, because obviously. There are people in the, in the in the apartment complex which have been fine they've been sequestered for four weeks now and are clearly are not uh at risk but as a post worker, you're never really sure yeah you, don't, you run across hundreds of people a day I'm sure yeah
0: yeah especially if you're older and you can say no nah, I'm not I'm not going there like yeah. I don't want, I don't want to die yep. like it's a reasonable stance to take so yeah it's hard <laughs> I was listening to another podcast this week and and uh it was by this this entrepreneur and his co-host is also uh, like big in, in tech. And he was like, you know what, though? He's like, I haven't opened a piece of my mail. And he said in 10 years, he said in 10 years, I'm like, what? 10 and years. Got, he, and he got questioned by his co host, And he's like, he's like, yeah, he's like, I just don't have important mail. He's like the mail, the physical hmm. mail that I get. And it's been this way, he said for a long time. It just doesn't have any value to me. He's like, I'm in business like Things that are valuable are DocuSign, their electronic, their email, okay. their t- yeah. message. He's like, I just haven't gotten important mail in a really long time unless, you know, he was not w- including packages, obviously. Okay. Said, okay. Said, okay. Like, You're talking like, about paper envelopes. mail letters. Yeah, paper mail that fits in your mailbox. He's like, I just don't get like, he's like the postal, the postal service right now. He said to me, he's like, if they don't want to deliver to my house, that's okay. He's like, I'm, f- I'm fine with that. Just, it's not <laughs> essential to me. <laughs> Packages separate issue, but I thought
1: that was. This an interesting is like take. that Seinfeld just... episode, right? Wasn't it Seinfeld where Kramer decided he didn't want to have any mail anymore? It was too much to deal with, and he told the post office not to deliver. Isn't wasn't that Seinfeld?
0: I don't remember it, but that I mean that sounds like. That and sounds like,
1: Newman's uh, that's the Seinfeld. postman, he's telling no, you have to take the mail, you have to take the mail, and Kramer put eventually puts bricks into his mailbox so they couldn't deliver the mail, and it him <laughs> a big tussle back and forth. It sounds very similar to that. Yeah.
0: Oh, with Kramer or with uh, with wait, what was what did you you just say the name Newman? Yeah, that's I gotta. That sounds like a golden episode. I gotta look that up.
1: That's a that's a golden yeah. It, it, <laughs> how appropriate that Seinfeld applies directly to life. Yeah, it, I, it does I can a lot. See, I, yeah,
0: I can just picture those two bickering. You gotta take the mail. I don't want the mail. I don't want the mail. Yeah, that's. You can
1: write for that show. It's exactly <laughs> that's exactly how it went. Actually,
0: yeah, yeah. I, I can picture it. I can picture it. <laughs> so so today we're talking about uh, parts manufacturers a little bit, and we're going to talk about paint, yeah. um, which we've covered both those in eh, just like on the surface um, yeah. in previous episodes. But so one company that does some pretty interesting stuff out of Israel uh, is CanFit. So they, I was on their website a bunch the other day doing a lot of research for the show. And yeah. it seems like they have a, a unique niche where they can make really high quality metal parts. They can also make really high quality, uh, composite parts, Yes, but they can also, it seems like their specialty is that they can also make really high quality metal and composite parts. Whereas other, um, for other, I guess, uh, suppliers, you might have to go to a composites person and a metal person and kind of combine them, like pass them together, but they can kind of do it all in house and get a unique part. So tell us a little more about, about CanFit.
1: Well, Can't Fit is based in Israel, and uh, I forget how long they've been around, but they're a well-established company, and they, they're involved in a variety of different aerospace markets, uh, from making parts for aircraft to uh, making drones. They, they make radomes, uh, so they're, they're involved in a lot of different areas. But it's one of those unique businesses and places where they have basically skilled aerospace workers that can do the gamut. And that's unique today. I'll give you the example uh, in the United States. In the United States, it tends to be either you make composite parts because you're hip and cool, or you make metal parts because it makes money. And mm-hmm. so rarely do the two shall meet. Uh, so it's a different skill set. Clearly, it's a different skill set. So you you have to have a pretty highly educated workforce to do that. Composite parts take a lot of uh, layer. You have layers of material you're putting on. You're dealing with epoxies or resin systems. It's complicated. You may have an auto, you have an autoclave in there, um, so you're taking temperatures and that kind of stuff. The metal work I think is just as important though. Even though we just because we've we've done it for a number of years now, making metal parts has gotten easier in a sense, but they're no less critical. So having a company that can actually make both ends of that is in today's world really unique. Um, and, and I don't know if it's just a fact that they're, they're in a smaller country and they just need to be very versatile, and that's what drives it. It also can drive it just because they have the the skilled labor force to go ahead and do that. Um, but we've been working with them for for a number of years, and uh, the things we see come from there are exceptional. They really are.
0: So you you look at some of the so – I was listening to a, a Jeff Bezos – interview um, just sometime last week and he had a really insightful thing to say. He was talking about uh, his company, Blue Origin, Mm -hmm. and in the context of, uh, you know, Elon Musk's company, SpaceX, and he was being, and this was a talk from, I think, 2018, but he was Hmm. explaining why he's putting his money into that. And he basically said that when um, Amazon started, he was able to start that company with a million dollars in his garage because there was already this massive infrastructure Already existing for him to tap into, which was right. FedEx and UPS. Yeah, um, all these. Uh, you know, the internet was still young, but the internet existed. Yeah, and so he basically said, like, I had this huge backbone, which with which I could just sort of hoist my company and and become this big company. Right. He said, but with space, he said, no one. And he and he used other companies as reference. He's like, no one's making an iPhone in their garage. He's like, the technology, like, you just can't do that. It's, it's yep. it requires too many people who are highly skilled to to make a product like that. Yeah. He said that, and he said the same thing for, he's like, no one is going to space or making improvements on us going into space um, from the garage. So he said, I find that it's my, um, my contribution to, to start to lay some of that groundwork and make that foundation in space travel, where maybe in, you know, X amount of years, 20, 30 years, someone can take a small company um, using what we've started and then grow into a big company that really furthers the, you know, the human race and our space, space exploration. So I thought that was really interesting. And I, I was thinking about that as I was looking at, uh, some of, you know, Canfit's manufacturing and, yeah, and as true. you look at some of these parts and some of these aerospace, uh, initiatives and endeavor and endeavors, and I was, I was thinking to myself like, man, this is really technical work and looking at all their, yeah, it is. Um, their manufacturing and, and like yeah. all the research and development, I'm like, How could a person try to get into like aerospace or parts manufacturing? It seems like it's a really high cost to just be like, Hey, I've been an engineer my whole career. Um, Mm. I want to start my own, you know, parts, (laughs) my composite. It seems like there's still a lot of big barriers. I mean, can you speak to that? I mean, how do some of these huge airline companies get going?
1: You need a lot of cash and you need, you need to have a customer that's willing to, to work with you as you put this thing together, right? Virgin Airways was another example. There's been a lot of like airlines and aerospace companies, uh, Sierra Nevada Corporation is another one that comes to mind. So there's a, there's a, there's a bunch of companies that have, have kind of quasi garage built out, um, but it's hard because you just always need more and more cash to get to the next project. Mm-hmm. And in, in, a, in a sense, you uh, It's almost to the point where you think about if my wife and I were talking about this the other day about how how few aerospace companies there are today, even from when we first joined, when we first joined, we were working for General Electric and General Electric had an aerospace division. Well, they don't have an aerospace and they sold it to, at the time, Lockheed, who then merged with uh, uh, Martin, so became Lockheed Martin, and that was in a, a realm of about three years that all that happened. And the consolidation, the consolidation, because all the projects, we were working on spacecraft projects at the time, the, those spacecraft projects cost so much money, and if mm-hmm. you had a bad launch or you didn't get into orbit, it's, it's so much money. You couldn't, as a, as a small organization, you couldn't really afford it to go wrong. Uh, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, uh, those kinds of financial wherewithal of Bill Gates, um, Paul Allen, those t- kinds of people can't afford the risk and could lose the money and still go out to dinner at night. Yeah. There's a difference, right? And and it's it's so if you think about the I you don't know they're just celebrating the was it the 50th anniversary of if it's a celebration, I suppose, of the Apollo 13 uh, launch and the problems they had on Apollo 13. And if you go if you kind of thumb through some of that information like wow that's really rudimentary compared if we were building the same exact thing today and we are trying to build basically similar things today it's it's we're spending so much more money on it and it's so much more complicated than some of the stuff we we're building way back then but it's also a lot safer which mm-hmm. is the point right so even though the the process is the same we have added a lot more capabilities like uh, the spacex launches where they're landing vertically right they'd be able to reuse a lot of the equipment, and which was or an overall cost savings, but the complexity and the risk involved with that, because that could have not worked. And if it didn't work, well, Elon Musk is at risk, but he's not at that much risk, you know, in a sense yeah. because of all the money he has. So, yeah, so if the rocket, and it did, right? If you remember some of the early rocket launch uh, landings where it would just tip over, or they're trying, they're trying to let it out on that barge out in the ocean and it wouldn't quite do it or it was too windy or and all the things that play into that. Um, you need big companies with uh, ability to swallow it. And even Boeing has really struggled in some of these launch things lately because PR-wise in a, in a publicly traded company, it's hard to have big mishaps, right? And so I, I do see that, that sort of the Bezos thing makes sense in the sense that you know, if if um, one of his little experiments goes wrong, okay, you know, it's, it's on him.
0: Yeah, well, you know, as you start to wade through what, you know, camp, it says that they are one of the very few people that can make really good quality, yeah. um, composite and metal parts. Yeah, true. You can probably see why, like if you're, a, you know, you're in the metal part industry and that's your niche and you say, okay, we want to get into composites, there's probably just a really oh, big startup cost to then get huge. all that tooling and, and technology and yeah, all yeah. that stuff it's and expensive to have people that know how to do it. And you got to find, I mean, it's a whole, it seems like that's why everyone run into their little, their little, yeah, their little niches. And yeah. Oh um, yeah.
1: I, I, so, yeah. Everybody on the, on the, who's actually working in the factory there has expertise and it's hard to find people who have both expertise and sort of metal and on, and on the composite side and on the engineering side, you hear it's, it's the beach starship, uh, uh, black aluminum airplane, Thing that happens where we make a decision that everything's going to be made out of composite and or it's going to be made out of metal. You know, the reality of the situation is the the best solution is a combination of the two, which is where can fit is that you can make metal parts because they're the way they're just lighter, they can be lighter than car- carbon fiber is heavy, right? But carbon fiber can you can put you can orient where the strength is in a piece of composite you in a, in a piece of metal, you can't really do that. So every part, and depending on what the structural loads are and what you're using it for, a design decision needs to be made, whether it should be made out of metal or it should be made out of composite. In a in a place like CanFit, you can make those decisions all the time because you can do both, right? So you probably have the best overall solution when you put all these pieces together. You probably have the best product overall because you made, off the, made those trade-offs. You, you didn't have to do one or the other from the start. You can make the best decision for the part, for the assembly, for the whole uh, aircraft up front, which is going to yeah. lead to a, a better end product.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So let's shift gears. I want to talk a little bit about, um, we talked about uh, expanded metal mesh yeah. last week. So yeah. there's another company, Niles Expanded Metals. They're a yeah. big player in the industry with their their micro mesh LSP. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the applications of uh, of, of metal foil?
1: Boy, in the aerospace industry, it's all over right now uh, because so many parts are made out of either fiberglass or carbon fiber or a mixture of the two, uh, and the, everything needs lightning protection for the most part. And the the, the choice that has been uh, developed over the years is expanded metal foils. Uh, just because they're relatively easy to install, they had a lot of conductivity into a part. They also um, are readily f- fixable. Uh, it's a simple material to use it can be bonded on secondarily it can be bonded on pri- with the primary part so it can be integral so there's a lot of benefits to expanded metal foils and we have uh, oodles and oodles and oodles of data from expanded metal foils uh, from lightning protection standpoint so there's book data out there on it uh, which helps designers uh, choose an expanded metal so the the obviously in wind turbines it's a little bit different it's just not typically used on the exterior of a wind turbine, but it's tend to be used on the interior, especially where there's carbon fiber spars. So they want to keep energy out of the carbon fiber. Um, and so they use expanded metal foils to do that. So that the energy, a lot of the energy stays in the in the expanded metal foil and out of the carbon fiber structure. Uh, so they're truly really two different applications, but both both are just very important for, for both markets. Uh, and and the, the thing about the expanded metal foil market in the aerospace side is Really, the quality of the product, the consistency of the product, right? Um, some of your worst nightmares if, if the if the material comes in kinked and it doesn't lay lay flat, so you can actually see it on in the on the aircraft surface because it's not laying right. Um, or if it's got some wide variability in its resistance range, because the resistance has a lot to do with this lightning strike protection. So if, if, if you've, and goodness knows why I got wrapped into this one time, but we were actually measuring different lots, the resistance of expanded metal foils, uh, from different lots, and I was surprised how much variability there was in it. But that, that had to do a lot with the manufacturing, uh, the, the place that was manufacturing it, quite honestly. So in a place like Niles, which if you go on the, go on the website or actually look at the, some of the YouTube videos from them, it's a very automated process, and they seem to have very consistent uh, products. And they, off, and they also, also offer a variety of different materials you can choose from. Uh, it's right on the website. So the the two big ones in aerospace today are... Copper, which is tend to be used a lot with carbon fiber and aluminum, which used a lot because it's a little, it's lighter. Aluminum gets to with fiberglass. Uh, and aluminum are these, and carbon. Are these are these laid on
0: top or are they yeah. embedded within?
1: Uh, well, they're laid on top. So we think of it as another structural. Think of it as a ply. So it's usually if you're gotcha. building up a composite part, it's usually the foils tend to be the first down and then you start st- stacking your carbon fiber plies on top of it. Um, that's generally how it goes. Uh, so it's actually built in when they put the part in the autoclave and they cook it off it, the foil is actually built into the exterior surface of the part. So it's the outermost layer of the part. Think of it that way.
0: Gotcha. Okay. okay.
1: Yeah. So it, from a handling standpoint um, and the, the, the expanded metal is, is beautiful because it'll go to crazy contours and not kink or you can you can kind of lay it out where it's flat uh a solid sheet wouldn't do that so having the the, the holes in it um, allows one allows the epoxy resin to in, to to fill it up and to grab hold of it and bond it on but it also lays, lays it lay flat which is really important if you're going over some like a, a fairing like a belly fairing on an airplane it tends to be very funky curvatures for aerodynamic reasons um yeah, a lot of parts like that where you want to have curvatures. The expanded metal foils fit that niche where you can lay it down. It's pretty thin. You can kind of massage it on it apart. And when it's done, it still looks good. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the difference between uh, the copper and aluminum uh, aluminum is galvanically incompatible with carbon fiber. So if you have. If you put aluminum on carbon fiber structure and you expose it to salt water, like typically happens, uh, the aluminum just gets eaten up by the, the carbon fiber. It just aluminum just turns to powder. That's what it looks gotcha. like. So the copper is is the choice with carbon fiber, and then uh, obviously aluminum then gets used a lot of times um, with fiberglass. But uh, Niles offers both of those things and in different variations, different uh, thicknesses, different essentially resistivities, and you can actually punch in numbers on the website and get kind of anything you want out of it. Um, there are some very common weights. And if you look around different aircraft programs, they're kind of dialed in. And that's based on the lightning testing. So if you can go on different websites and check out some of the generic lightning testing that has been done, you can get a sense of, of um, the thickness of the foil. It's usually by weight. Uh, 0.022 pounds per square foot is a very typical uh, copper foil that's used on a lot of different aircraft. It, it, or around there, 0. 0.020, 022, 024. Uh, aluminum. 024. So, aluminum, I don't see that as much because we're not making a lot of fiberglass parts today but the copper tends to be roughly that way so uh, uh you'll you'll see that on Niles' website
0: gotcha and and these are all going to end up being painted parts cuz I want to yeah. segment to um some of the stuff Honda Jets doing so yeah. what is Honda Jet doing that's different than other companies as far as paint and their controls and their quality uh with with
1: painting their aircraft so the Honda Jet is a carbon fiber fuselage empennage aircraft the wing is metallic uh, and on the fuselage they're using expanded metal foil um, it's a I believe it's copper I worked on that program but it, I believe it's copper uh, and so when you have smaller private jets so sort of part 23 light jets I'll call them the structure the composite structure is not thick uh, it's not like a 787 where it's, it's it's a quarter inch thick. It's much, much thinner than that. So the the lightning protection is really critical. And in the Honda case where they're using an expanded metal foil, one of the critical factors is how much paint you apply on top of that foil. So part of the lightning qualification process is to go off and to test that carbon fiber part with Um, the copper foil with a certain amount of paint on it. You always use a worst case paint because as you get thicker in paint, the expanded metal foil becomes less effective and you start to have punctures or damage into the carbon fiber structure. So in the Honda case, um, it's it's a very aerodynamic aircraft. It's a very advanced aircraft and they did a lot of honing on reducing weight in that aircraft to make it efficient. And it's one of the most efficient light jets on the market and maybe the most efficient light jet on the market right now. And so they're they're having a lot of sales because of it because it just doesn't have the fuel burners that the aircraft do, um, and so part of that deal is that you have to be able to control the paint thickness. Now, HondaJet early on, and and a lot of aircraft companies uh, started out by just having painters, hand guys in masks and the whole thing with uh, uh, sprayers spray paint on it, and try to keep it within that that certain uh, thickness range. So typically. An aircraft uh, specs will say that the the paint thickness is somewhere around five mils thick, so five thousandths of an inch thick is where the paint is. But that's hard to do on a large object, particularly if there's contours on it, so the paint Mm -hmm. thickness varies a good bit. Um, And I've worked on programs like that, and composite programs where the paint thickness was, you know, plus or minus three, four mils, it depends. Mostly plus, very little on the minus side, it's like plus four, minus one. so in, in the case of Honda, and they're having so much expertise on uh, building of cars and painting of cars, for that matter, and have done it for a number of years, they have used robots to do it. And so they decided to take, them all, to take the technology from the automotive sector, which they are, are great at, and apply some of that knowledge into the aircraft market. And they started uh, painting their aircraft with robots. And it was brilliant. And there's a YouTube video of it now, and you can just go watch this process happen, but essentially putting on the the white top coat paint, which is the usually the problem child is that white top coat trying to control his paint thickness. Well, they can get very, very consistent paint thicknesses because they're doing it automatically, which is brilliant. Right. So not only can they have a very lightweight structure and they're using a very advanced uh, expanded metal foil for lightning protection, but they can also do the other thing, which is to control the paint thickness coming out of the factory. That's genius. Right. And and that's where a lot of other aircraft programs have struggled, quite honestly, is controlling paint thickness, because as employees come in and out and as as as, uh, techniques change and one guy does it one way and another painter paints it the other way. Uh, you get wide variations, and it just adds a lot of labor and time and cost into the product. Well, Honda has just eliminated that. They've eliminated all availability, and they've done it robotically. That is absolute genius, and the aerospace industry should have done it years and years ago. Uh, the military has done it on some of their uh, applications. The U.S. military has done it on some applications. I, I believe some of the European forces have done something similar. But you don't really see it in in the commercial market. Honda's done it, and it's well, it's amazing to watch. You should go watch that YouTube video because it's amazing to see that go on.
0: Yeah, and, and it's we'll put that in the show notes as well. Great. Um, but I mean, I think the audio industry has been uh, robotically painting cars. At least at least some manufacturers are. I'm sure. Yep. Like I've seen yep. videos of like I know it was Audi. They were just showing how much automation there was, start to finish. Just the the entire chassis getting picked up by two robots, dipped. Yeah. And gal, you know, whether it's galvanized or whatever the process was, yep. and coming out, and I think they're actually dip painting a lot of their, if if yeah. not the whole thing, but right. yep. It seemed like those processes, which which makes sense, especially on that scale. Yeah. Now I know with like a you know a, a Boeing seven eighty seven or something, they're not going to produce forty thousand of them. So maybe well, I don't know. They're like, well,
1: not well, in a year, hand, no.
0: Hand paint them, yeah, but yeah, yeah.
1: Well, yeah, because there's a lot of and there's a lot of real estate there too, and every yeah the the issue for and i think for honda is it's been very specific about uh, the variations in the paint scheme um you can get it different colors but the paint scheme is essentially the same mm-hmm. uh, the stripes which tend to be where everybody puts their mark on their particular aircraft on automobiles you don't do that right so they come red yeah. yellow blue right they're one color and any kind of any kind of uh, variation is something that's done secondarily it's not done at the factory typically right Uh, and so that makes it easy from an automation standpoint. And Honda did that on the aircraft, right? They just said, Hey, here's the, here's the breadth, the colors you can choose from pick one. And I, I always think, well, obviously Honda knows consumer tastes in automotive side. So they just, especially on the sports car side. So they applied that knowledge directly to their aircraft too. So I always thought their color choices were very, uh, very wise, because it fed into a certain demographic and it it it, it was cool looking and they still mm-hmm. are cool looking
0: i mean cool always Cells. I mean, it doesn't matter yeah, it how old does. you get. It's like, yeah, I want the cool-looking airplane. No, no, no. I want the, I want the airplane that looks like you know, a, <laughs> DC3. A, a, yeah,
1: yeah. like a DC three. Yeah, the
0: equivalent of like the white nurses' shoes. It's like, no, you want the, no, a, a, the Italian loafers of, of the air crane,
1: airplane. Yeah, right. and well, Honda has done that because if you look at the design of it, right, where they've on the Honda jet where they've uh, taken the the engines off of the fuselage and mounted them to the back of the wing, essentially. Um, it's a slick looking airplane. It's very sl- slippery, right? It, they've done a lot of work on the aerodynamics. They spent a lot of time, many years working on the aerodynamics of that aircraft. Uh, and it just looks cool on the ramp and haven't been inside of it and been around it quite a bit. It's a cool looking airplane. I, I can't say all new jets look like that, but they've definitely s- did some homework on just the eye, the this sort of street appeal of that aircraft. It looks yeah. cool. It does look cool. It looks really cool in flight.
0: Well, and especially for someone who's got, you know, very deep pockets who could afford a private jet. Yeah. You know, they're going to be like, oh, what's that one? I want that. And just yeah. throw down their credit card and like, you know, whatever they cost. Well, and Honda you know.
1: comes with a reputation, right? So Honda has the quality reputation. I, I can't remember the last time I bought a non-Honda car. It's probably been 20 plus years since I bought a non-Honda car. And the reason I do it is because it's so dang reliable. And it has, it, then it has some of the features that I'm looking for, but most importantly, it's never, and we've owned a couple of Hondas over this 20 year odd year period. We've never had a Honda break down on us on the road, not once. Mm -hmm. And so that builds brand loyalty, right? And I think the same thing's going to exist for this other aircraft company is that as this aircraft shows how durable it is, and it has some really great performance features, it's just going to create a bigger marketplace for it. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I could definitely see that. And so before you wrap up here, there's one other thing I want to discuss, which is there's been some uh paint peeling issues on the the Boeing seven eighty seven.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and some implications with uh with fall arrest protection systems. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: So the FAA put out a safety notice essentially about a week ago. Uh On the 787, when you're working on top of the wing, they have these suction cups, and they have it on a lot of different aircraft. It's not specific to the 787, but you have these essentially suction cup devices. You suction cup onto the wing, you clip into it, so you're harnessed Mm -hmm. in. So if you slipped, it would catch you, and you wouldn't fall to the ground because the wing's pretty high. Um, You you would get hurt if you fell off that wing. So they had this suction cup device that they were grabbing onto and and latching their harnessing into, and the suction cup devices were pulling the paint off the the nice. wing skin right so that's so the so the arrest the, the fall pre- prevention device isn't sticking to the wing and I'm sure it raised a lot of eyebrows like why is the paint coming off this relatively new airplane what's up with that right um, and the safety bulletin goes on to note that they did uh, some research into it looking at what was causing the paint to, to lift off and they realized that the there's some level of UV degradation between the primer system so that it, and, the, and the composite structure. So the composite structure comes out of the tool, and it's carbon fiber, and it's got resin system on it. Uh, typically, they, they kind of scuff that up a little bit, and then they'll apply a primer onto it, and that primer bonds onto that resin-rich surface. Then you start putting uh, layers of paint on it and you get to the top coat, and that sticks on last, right? So mm-hmm. uh, they had some sort of UV degradation going on which decreased the adhesion of the primer to the composite skin. Well, heck, uh, that's really hard to pick up once the airplane's painted. It'd be very hard to to notice where that was, so you're going to have to find out the hard way uh, until the aircraft gets repainted. Uh, One of my colleagues saw that notice and commented, uh, how did they get that much UV damage on the wingskin unless it just happened to be just sitting out in the sunshine for quite a while, and it didn't get properly um, prepared before they put primer on. Or oh, there's just some weird, weird um, UV thing where, as the aircraft mm-hmm. is primed, and a lot of times they sit out on the on the ramp primed, uh, was the UV light affecting the primer to the composite structure while it sat outside waiting to get top coat on it? Uh, and that's a good question. It did not really say that in the safety briefing briefing, but uh, you know, all these things revolve around at one point or another, revolve around lightning protection right? So um, it, 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 if you have a composite structure in a wing with fuel in it, like 787 does, there's lightning protection in there. Is there something about the lightning protection system that's affecting that also? That's the question mark. And, and my head is like, ooh, I wonder if it's something about the way the, the lightning protection system on that aircraft is affecting the paint adhesion. But it's something to watch out for. And I, and I know everybody that makes a composite structure right now, particularly a wing, is, I'm sure, thinking about do we have a the same issue that Boeing does like in the a350 or a 3 do we have a similar issue? Don't know, but the industry's going to go look.
0: Yeah. Well, if they hadn't figured this out from, from the suction cups would the paint have started peeling like during flight? Like how, what are the, I what don't... were the implications? It seems like they're <sighs> just saying, stop, stop putting the suction cups on them. Yeah. But it, otherwise it's probably okay. Is, is what yeah. It well, like. there's
1: all different levels of adhesion, right? It's like a uh, different levels of masking taper. So you can get yeah. uh, Cheap Scotch tape, you can get to masking tape, and then you can get to what we call in the States duct tape or the brand name where everybody's right now is Gorilla Tape, right? Now all the commercials are Gorilla Tape, which is super sticky. It is. paints just like that. Some of it sticks lightly. Some of it sticks moderately well. Some of it really sticks, and you, it's impossible to get off, right? Uh, so I don't think – I haven't seen – photographs of 787s with paint issues on the wing doesn't mean they don't exist but i and i do look around on there's a lot of photos taken of airplanes obviously so you would show up pretty easily i think somebody would notice it so mm-hmm. it must be the paint adheres enough that it's sticking in flight but if you if put suction James cups Bond, on it
0: you can't scale it yeah
1: yeah you put suction cups on it. you put a 300 pound person on it and pull it may not stick
0: yeah gotcha well yeah and, yeah, and- Especially if you're, say, sliding off the plane, oh. and then it catches, that's yeah. way more than three hundred pounds of force. That's probably a couple thousand pounds of force, just yeah. being shocked. Right Impulse that force, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and just it's like just those, pulling,
1: uh, pulling right
0: on it. Yeah, yeah. So that, that makes sense. Well, uh, that's it for today, Alan. Great show. Appreciate you. Um, yeah, thanks, Dan. Covered a, a wide range of topics today, um, and if you're new to the show always uh check back we are uh, on itunes we're on spotify we're on youtube if you're looking for short clips with uh that are just topical so you want to learn just about paint or you want to le- learn just about uh different types of lightning protection or metal bar foils. yeah you just want to get a quick hit about metal foils check out our youtube channel because we have lots of little clips that can help you get, just get your your quick uh, knowledge burst and be on your way um lastly subscribe and share with a friend and we'll catch you back here next week on the struck podcast